The all-new Hyundai 2024 Santa Fe is equipped with everything that you need to break free from the dull work week and embark on an adventurous weekend with your family. The all-new Hyundai Santa Fe's features like available H-Track all-wheel drive, standard third-row seating, available dual wireless charging pads, ensure that you can take on any adventure. Available H-Track all-wheel drive so you can take on the dirt trails and kick up some mud. Standard third-row seating so your whole family can experience the thrill together. Available dual wireless charging pads so no one gets stuck in the great outdoors with a dead phone. I've been so pumped to take a couple of friends with our road bikes to some of the trails nearby, and now I can bring the entire crew, my dog, and all of our gear with that third row. Learn more about the new Hyundai Santa Fe at HyundaiUSA.com. Call 562-314-4603 for complete details. On this episode of This League, I am tremendously honored to interview and announce Tara Vanderveer, head coach of the women's Stanford Cardinal team, 2021 national champion, the winningest coach in the history of women's collegiate basketball, which is fucking nasty. And she came through. She came through our pod. Tara takes us through the difference between being an NBA coach and an NCAA head coach in terms of progress and whether a woman will be an NCAA head coach for men's or in the NBA first. Uh, We also discuss Becky Hammond. She is all but certainly going to be the very first female coach in the NBA as a head coach. Uh, And then we end with some recent NBA news. Uh, Boogie Cousins is back into the league playing some of his most slim basketball that we've seen in a while. Kelly Oubre, Tsunami Poppy. We talk about his contract maybe being the most expensive player in the history of basketball when you take into consideration luxury tax. And KD, finally back from a hammy. So why are Nets fans still a little tiny, tiny bit nervous? Winning a trophy is hard. Winning a championship is hard. Consistently winning at any level over a long period of time? (laughs) I mean, damn near impossible. So let me take you through Tara Vanderveer. When she took over as head coach for the Stanford women's basketball team, her dad told her, yo, you're going to regret this decision. This is a joke. This team is trash. He said it was one of the worst decisions she could possibly make as a coach. I mean, not great um, enthusiasm or support from a dad, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> but, hey, I mean, just to recap that. I mean, parents are different. Parents have different standards <laughs> of what the right move is for their kids, yeah. right? It's At also that, changed a lot since then. For sure. <laughs> Women's basketball wasn't considered a highly coveted gig, Mm -hmm. right? And Stanford at this point was no powerhouse. They were terrible. They were 9 and 19 at that point. Pretty bad. And within five years, one recruiting cycle, Tara Vanderveer won her first national championship 32 and 1. One loss in five years of recruiting. That's fucking absurd. Yeah, that's really crazy to do it that quickly. And just, to just build a program out of nothing in a sport where, I mean, we like we mentioned, you know, throughout this week, the parity isn't always there. So to build a program up like that in that short of time is really crazy. It doesn't really make any sense because it was a barren <laughs> Stanford was a barren wasteland and she turned it into a thriving garden that has continued to thrive since then, since that time. Yeah. Till right this second. And at that point in time, like, I don't think I was born. I, I don't think 
the, her no, I was it was 29 years ago that she won her first title. I am 34, so I was a little ass kid. Yeah, I was like a very new baby. So put some respect on Tara Vanderveer's fucking name. <laughs> she has three titles under her belt, 14 Final Four appearances, and one in three different eras, three different types of basketball. The way of the world, internet was different. Didn't internet didn't even exist. Cell phones didn't even exist. And in December, she passed Pat Summit, the legend, as the all-time winningest coach in women's basketball history. I mean, I just really can't fully comprehend it. And then you talk to her and you're like, I feel it, but I'm not quite feeling it yet. Like, I want to see it, too. I want to feel I want to be in the room. With you want to be coached by her. I want to be in the room with with her and see how she does everything. Yeah, she definitely wasn't. She didn't. She didn't ever coach voice on. No, but like still an amazing interview. For but sure. Yeah. yeah. You could tell she was like, what's this going to be? <laughs> So no team, I would say, I think that this also deserves, a, I wouldn't call it an asterisk. I, I, I would say it deserves an underline that no team in the NCAA this year has had a harder road to win the Natty than Stanford. San Francisco was the strictest city in the country in terms of their COVID policies. Stanford had to be on the road for over nine consecutive weeks. Nuts. I mean- no home comforts, no nothing, just out there on these streets, just playing hoops, hoping. And they only went, well, they only lost two games, 31 and two. Come on now. Come on now. Also, another thing that people don't know, because Tara Vanderveer is not a huge household name. She is one of the main leaders and catalysts of what women's basketball is today. She had a vision even though she says in this interview that at the time she was just taking a gig, right? She just mm-hmm. wanted to be a head coach. But as time has progressed, she has been not only the leader for change, but also modernized basketball when she spent time overseas and started implementing the three much earlier than other teams did. So it's it was an exciting interview, even though she, again, like you said, didn't have her coach voice on. <laughs> so, and I think at this point, we could say that the women's tournament was better than the men's tournament. I know you didn't watch a lot of it, but it was way more exciting. There was way more parody. There were buzzer beaters. There was controversy. There was drama. ESPN had it on primetime. Yeah, that's, no, that part was sick. That's yeah. exactly what you want. And Tara has done a, a, a bunch to make that happen. So she talks about her place in pushing the games, game forward. She talked about whether she ever considered coaching men's hoops, um, which she did and probably won't now. And the importance of parity in women's sports, even though it makes her job harder, she would prefer to have it anyway because it's good for the game. So without further ado, let's get into our special interview with the coach of the 2021 National Champions, Stanford Cardinal, Tara, too many trophies to count, Vanderveer. Three-time Naismith Coach of the Year, three-time National Champion, gold medal Olympic coach, and the winningest coach in women's basketball and this year's national champion coach Tara Vanderveer of Stanford. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Um, it's a pleasure to be here with you. Um, and uh, we're, we're really excited about what our team accomplished. And I, uh, you know, I just have to kind of pinch myself a little bit. Yeah, you should be. You should be. It's crazy. I mean, this is 36 hours ago now. It's not too often that uh, 
that we get to have someone who has accomplished such a thing 36 hours after their win. Uh, have you slept at all? Um, you know, I have to say, you know, being down for three weeks in San Antonio, uh, it was exhausting. So yes, I did. When we got home, I, I went to bed early and I slept in and it felt great. <laughs> uh, you are the winningest coach, like I mentioned in women's basketball history, but actually your longest standing record came in 1967 where you set the Chautauqua Boys and Girls Club record for the softball throw event. Apparently, no one has ever broken that. Where does that well, stand in your list uh, of accolades? That's that's up there. I'm, how do you know about that? You know, I have to, when I have a legend on, I have to do my research. I was, I am very nervous that I might not have enough research done on you and you will expose me for the fraud that I am. So, <laughs> well, uh, I have gone to Chautauqua since I was eight years old and, um, you know, it, it is, uh, it, it is something that I'm proud of. And when I walk my dogs and I have people that are visiting, I'll go and show them that little record that's up on the boys and girls club, um, wall. So it, it, and, uh, it, it's just something that's kind of funny and fun. It's a long time to hold a record. And everybody says records are made to be broken. I would imagine in your book, they are not. You would like to keep that record. Well, you know, maybe they just don't do the event anymore. So whatever, whatever <laughs> it is, I still have it. So I'm excited about that. But um, obviously uh, what our team accomplished this year is, um, especially under the COVID situations, For sure. I'm, I'm really proud of that too. Yeah, you've been under your watch. Stanford has been to the final four 13 times. You've gone to the championship five times. Too many times, actually, to count uh, the Elite Eight and the Sweet 16. Like, you just can't even. I mean, you look at the Wikipedia, it's just you don't even want to count them all up. That's how many it is. So, all of that to say, Stanford is a powerhouse. And I would venture to guess not too many powerhouses want parity, makes it harder for them to continue their reign. But not you. You have been very vocal about wanting more parity in the women's sport, even though it makes it harder to recruit, makes it harder to continue success. Uh, why is that so important and so critical for the women's game? You know, I think that, um, you know, first of all, I, I'm really excited that our, our conference had two teams in the championship game. And for a long time, you know, Stanford was viewed as the, you know, the kind of, um, you know, Stanford was the only team in the Pac-10 or Pac-12 that was competitive. And, you know, there were nine other or 11 other like little teams. And and that has never been true. Um, and so, but I, I think that I see that if there's a excitement about women's basketball throughout the country, not just the same old teams, um, and then that's a good thing for women's basketball. And I think to have a, a, a bigger view of it then just your own team um, is important. I mean, a lot of people would argue, though, that viewers like dynasties, that they like super teams, they like duos. Everybody's very excited, obviously, about Paige and Ozzy um, pairing up next year at UConn. In your view, is that just not true? That, it, that the basketball as a whole is better for the viewer when there's more teams that possibly wouldn't be considered as uh, elite? Well, there's a lot more to women's basketball than just one team or a couple of teams. Yep. And 
I think uh, by constantly promoting one team or the same teams, uh, we're missing the, the view of what women's basketball is. Uh, women's basketball is uh, a lot of great teams, a lot of great players. And it's, um, you know, it's, that's the reality. But, um, you know, if we just keep promoting one player or one team, uh, I think it's uh, to the women's basketball's detriment. At what point mm-hmm. in your career did you realize that you were an integral part of building the women's game and creating that progress? Mm-hmm. I think I've always known that. Um, I think I've always been um, kind of looked at the big picture and wanted um, wanted things to be great for, uh, you know, great for women's sports. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure if you're aware, but, you know, with the Women's Sports Foundation, we have a legacy uh, coaching fund. And it's not just for women's basketball, it's for all sports. So I feel like I am, um, you know, cognizant of the disparity uh, between men's and women's athletics over over across the board, not just women's basketball. Yeah, that was seen in the bubble. You were very vocal about that. Uh, NCAA had to have known what they were doing and they just thought that they weren't going to get called on it. Do you agree? I, I think they set themselves up for that kind of bad publicity. And I think it is unfortunate. Um, I think that there, you know, there was a lot of work that went into the, the both tournaments, but a lot of work that went into the women's tournament that maybe people felt that it wasn't appreciated when in fact that was, but there was, there was such disparity, uh, whether it's the, um, you know, promotion, um, promotion of the games, whether it's the, you know, whether it's a weight room, whether it was the food, whether it was the testing, uh, the branding on the floors, the, um, the entertainment that was seen, um, you know, uh, on the men's um, tournament, not seen on the women's tournament. Um, and it, and it, it is something that I think came to a head because of the COVID and because you have these, two, these bubbles, it wasn't like games were happening all over the place. Um, and women's basketball, has done things differently than the men's. But when you are in a bubble and you're doing it the same, then I think you have to do it the same. You have the longest, I'm sure people have said this a million times to you. You are very well aware that you have the longest gap between championships, 29 years. I'm sure. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's a a good thing to you or a bad thing to you, but how how, it's, it's impressive to have uh, the ability to win championships in different eras and different stages of the women's game that, like I said, you've been so a part of shepherding. How do you uh, be a part of that shepherding and also adapt as that change is happening as a coach and also a leader of the game? Well, if you think about it, I was, um, you know, I was the coach of a team that won um, really before there was even email or cell phones. (laughs) Um, And you know, um, I had an opportunity to be a head coach at a very young age. And, and that w- I think is part of it. Um, and I, I think that we, we had opportunities. We've had great, great teams and to win a national championship. Um, I think the stars have to be in alignment. You know, you have to have the, you can't have injuries. Uh, you have to have matchups that are favorable to you. Um, you have to, uh, you know, just, you really have to have everything go right. And for us, um, you know, easily we could have lost to uh, Louisville in our sweet 16 game. We could have lost to South Carolina. We could have lost to Arizona. So 
You know, there are games that we could have lost and maybe there are teams in the other side of the bracket that might've been bad matchups for us. So, but um, you know, we did win it and we won it in COVID, which I think even it'll have an asterisk by it in, in a way, because this was a different championship, but in, in a lot of ways, it was a harder championship. hundred percent. And we're really proud of that. hundred percent. I mean, Northern California was the most strict on COVID pretty mm-hmm. much in the country. And you're right there in the heart of Palo Alto, which right. what do you say? Nine weeks on the road. It was even a little longer than that. Yes. Do you think this is the most difficult championship that you've, you've had to win? The most difficult. Difficult? Yeah. Do you think that this yes. was the most difficult Definitely. for you as a coach? Definitely. Um, you know, in 1990, we had the earthquake in Northern California. Um, you know, so one of my former players teased and said, you know, that we win national championships when we have um, like national, national emergencies, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Na- national disasters. So I'm the national disaster coach of the year. In 1990, you were asked by a journalist whether you would coach a D1 men's team, which is that's a long time ago. Um, and the quote, I'm sure you, I don't know if you remember it. You said, I'm open to it. I love the job that I have now. I love being a role model for these young ladies. And if someone offered me a job coaching men that would double my salary in a place where I would want to live, I would definitely be interested. And I have a lot of confidence that I could do the job. But unfortunately, this is the part that I find really interesting. Uh, college coaching is the last bastion of chauvinism, sexism, and racism, and it is still alive and well. Um, those words still, still true to this day. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That was um, 30. You know, I think, plus that, years um, ago. I think professional sports has made, uh, understands maybe the importance of diverse coaching staffs, diverse in not just racial diversity, but gender diversity too. And a lot of, you know, different women are getting a chance at the professional level, which maybe then someday will, um, you know, kind of filter down to a collegiate level. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm very happy doing the job I'm doing. Um, I I love watching women's basketball. Um, I love coaching women's basketball and, you know, there's, there's just a lot of, we have a lot of growth to do and I'm, I'm, it's fun to be part of it. Yeah. To me, the more, the more you talk about it, the more I feel like the game needs you. Like, even if you could coach men's D1, even if you could coach the NBA, that there's a part of you that wants to stick with the women's sport because you're sort of tied to it as, as a a leader and sort of the flagship of that. You agree? Mm -hmm. Right. I agree. Um, I think the other thing that is, um, you know, I think that in a lot of ways that question was asked with the idea that men's basketball is better to coach than women's basketball. That for men's sure. Basketball That's is, implicit is, in that question, is it right, not? Right. And so um, I want to make it implicit in my answer that I don't see it that way any more than if you're a professor at Stanford and you have men or women in your class coaching to me is teaching and bringing out the best in the students that you have. Um, and it's not, um, you know, to, to me, it's, uh, you know, equally rewarding. Do you think we're close to seeing a woman coach the NBA at the head coaching level? Um, I, I definitely think that that, that will happen. Um, and, you know, but I think that, you know, some of it is, 
um, giving, you know, giving women the opportunity, um, putting, you know, there are a lot of things that are happening right now where women are being, they are being accepted as leaders. Um, we have our, a female vice president, which is thrilling. Um, and, you know, hopefully we'll have a female president. Um, I think we should have, our life would be better if we had, but, um, you know, it's, uh, I think it's a situation where people have to uh, just change some of their attitudes. When you first started coaching to begin with, and you knew that this was going to be your lifelong mission to a degree, um, what was your vision of what the women's game could and would become and what you were hoping to push it towards being? And, and how far do you think we are from that vision now? Well, you know, when you're 25 years old, I don't know that you have vision. I'm not sure you're visionary. Um, I was a head coach when I was 25 years old <laughs> at Idaho. Facts. And, you know, I, in 1978, and I was thrilled to um, be coaching at Idaho to have a team that uh, it was just real. It was fun. And the, the way I look at it was um, it beat it beat getting a job. You know, it was it was going to the gym, doing things that I loved. and you know, I didn't have this big idea. I'm going to change the world. I was, I just was trying to survive day by day. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a in the moment person and I want to enjoy the, 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 just the, the process, the journey. I'm not always thinking about what, what the end game is. Mm. It's interesting. I don't know if you know this, but this is the only female led MBA podcast period. And I don't think about that at all. And other people around me have to tell me how uh, impactful that is. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that um, I think that it's, you know, like my email box, my so my, you know, text messages. I mean, um, there are a lot of women in this world who um, struggle, not because they're not competent, but because they're not given opportunity. Um, and they uh, are not paid what they should be paid. They're not given um, management positions. They're not given, um, you know, the opportunity to do things, not because they're not capable, but because of the old boy, net, old boys network or whatever. And so when they see you doing your job or when they see me doing my job, uh, we're, we're inspiration to them. And, um, and they need that. Uh, not that they should need that, but they do. Um, and, you know, hopefully that is helpful for them to go in and, you know, battle for a raise or, um, you know, can remind themselves that they're very capable and be confident. You, uh, I, I'd love to hear a little bit about when you were young. I thought that this story about how you broke in to basketball as a player was sort of a testament to how you were going to attack the rest of your life, which mm -hmm. is finding a workaround. Right. I think we as women find workarounds to get to what is equal mm -hmm. or to some some level of parity. You bought a the nicest basketball that you could uh, so that everyone would want to choose you on the team, even though that was not what they were inclined to do on their own with their own free will. Um, well, when I, keep, yeah, when I was little, um, my parents didn't. Have, sorry, my okay. parents didn't have a. Um, we didn't have a hoop in our driveway. So, um, 
I always had to go and play with like at, on the, at the neighbor hoop and the boys at the time, you know, you know, you're 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 years old. Um, and mostly as I got older, the, you know, it was just boys playing and, you know, they Same. didn't, they didn't want me to play, but I would bring the best basketball. And if they wanted to use my ball, then I got to play. Um, and you do have to figure out ways to get in the game. And I figured, you know, I figured that one out, but, um, it wasn't because I wasn't good enough. Um, in the, in my ninth grade yearbook, the, which we didn't have a, we didn't have a set there. The boys had a seventh grade team, an eighth grade team, a freshman team, a JV team and a varsity team. And as girls, we had play day, but, uh, the, the gym, uh, and gym class, the, boy, the boys, um, basketball coach and gym teacher wrote in my ninth grade yearbook to the best basketball player in the ninth grade boy or a girl. And, you know, so, every, you know, the boys knew I was good. Um, and I, and I love to play and I, you know, I just, and I studied the game. So I didn't really have good timing as a player in terms of playing, you know, with scholarships and on television and all the things, but I did have good timing as a coach. How important was it for you to be an international coach? And to, uh, to- that, was a, that, that was a tremendous experience. Um, you know, for me, first we took our we took our Stanford team. The first international trip, um, I believe, was uh, took our Stanford team to China and played against fabulous, fabulous competition. I mean, our Stanford team would eventually win a national championship in 1990, but we went over in 1988, and we um, we got blasted by everyone we played. Wow! But they had they had great great teams, and they had the three point line internationally, and then we adopted the three-point line in, in college basketball that next year. And, and I think that really helped us win a national championship playing against teams that, you know, one player alone made t- 10 threes against us. So wow. I'm like, we're going to shoot threes. And we did. And that's how we won our first championship in 1990. Then I had wow. the experience of coaching, obviously USA teams. Um, I went all over the world. Um, we, we played in um, Yugoslavia. We played in, uh, Russia. Um, we went to England. Uh, we played in France, Italy, Lithuania, uh, Brazil, big championships in Australia, China. Um, you know, er, 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 we played everywhere and it, it was great to watch, you know, to, to get the styles from different teams and uh, also, you know, to have the best players in the world to, to coach. It was, it was awesome. So that that trip abroad really changed uh, and modernized your team moving forward. Well, I think that uh, for me, um, I, I I'm a copier, so I watch what other teams do and copy the good things that they do and the things that seem to fit uh, our you know our team. Um, and I still do that. You know, I watch games and I'll say, oh, that play would work for us, and we'll we'll steal it. So, you know, there's no patents in basketball. You can just flat out steal plays from people. Uh, is that why, is your experience overseas why you pressed the Olympic Committee to allow an entire year uh, for those women to play together because you knew what that stage and what that level of competition was going to be like versus just putting a team together for like two weeks? Well, that wasn't my decision. Um, that was um, the USA Basketball when uh, our women's team uh, got a bronze and then we were playing the, the next Olympics was in Atlanta. I think the committee just said, Hey, we want to win this Olympics. We've got to make some changes. What do we need to do? And it just so happened that, you know, I, I, that fit 
my personality and my coaching style the, to really be thorough and, you know, not just roll the ball out there and hope that your athletes and not even give them a chance. The rest of the world practiced together and we didn't give our athletes a chance. We had, we had the best players in the world, but if you don't practice together and you don't train together and you don't play together, you know, basketball is a team game and it's a lot more than just great individuals out there. You have been in a uh, ton of tight games, even in this tournament specifically. I, and, and in the final four, I think what was really interesting to me watching uh, the championship game back is how you approached uh, that that defense with five and a half seconds left. Uh, you called that final play. Everyone knew Aerie was going to get the ball. You pressured the mm-hmm. inbounds. You took away the cutter, bumped her off, and then threw the book at Aerie. Basically yeah. created a tent around her. Like she was. And she still got the shot up. Couldn't believe it. Could not believe it. And almost made it. If if Aerie hits that shot, do you basically say that was a perfect game plan? That was exactly what we wanted to, to happen. We're just going to take take the L and go home. Tip our cap. Well, I don't know what else we could have done. You know, we, um, you know, we, we tried to not, tried not to let her get the ball to begin with. And you can't leave other people wide open at the rim. Um, we, we worked really hard not to get it. And then, you know, basically I just said, she's going to get the ball. We've got to defend her. And I think uh, like Kiana saw that Lexi could go and she said, you know, go trap her. And Lexi left her player and key rotated up. And, um, another player came up too. I think cam and, you know, did present, a, a, you know, and it could have been, uh, we, you know, it could have gone in and, I, you wouldn't be talking to me. Um, <laughs> Maybe I but, still would. Uh, Probably I still would. No, you wouldn't be. You'd be talking to Adia. But, um, you know, it was, uh, you know, sometimes again, I just say, you, you know, the stars have to be in alignment. And we we had dodged two big basket winners for South Carolina in the game before. Yep, those bunnies. Uh, we'd, down, we'd been down 12 against Louisville and came back. So, you know, sometimes you just have to have some, uh, you know, be fortunate and, and good karma. And, you know, you create... Uh, there's a saying, um, uh, you believe in karma. There's a, car, do I believe in karma? Yeah. Um, probably a little bit, but, um, there's a saying that, um, before we went to the tournament, I make, I make rice crispy treats for our team and I put M and M's in them Bomb. and they're, they're really good. Our team really likes them a lot. <laughs> and so I gave them our team this and, and every player had a quote with their little rice crispy treat bag. And one of the quotes is, the harder I work, the luckier I get. Mm. And we were very fortunate in that game, but we worked really hard in that game too. Yeah, that was a tough win. If you were on the other side, so say Adia calls that play, does the same thing, or say you're the head coach of Arizona at this point and you know what the scheme is. How do you how do you counterattack that? Is there any way um, to scheme against that? Well... You know, um, I mean, there, there, I think, I think there probably are in a way that, you know, um, I think if, as an example, you know, if they had come into someone else and they fake a handoff to Aerie and and our whole team goes with her and then someone else can win for a basket, but that would might've left time on the clock for us to then take a timeout in advance. And that's something that I think, you know, you have this in the pro game, but. In the college game, the, the men don't have 
uh, the advancing role. And I think it's a great, great thing for women's basketball. And it, it keeps it much more interesting. Absolutely. I think also there was a, a gal in the corner that could have come up and set a screen. And then all those three gals that were triple teaming her would have been closed out and she could have rolled over and hit a mid range too. So everything happens really fast. Yeah, you know? it, it does. Um, and you know, if that had happened, one of our players would have switched onto her or whatever, but yeah. Um, I mean, they, I think everyone in the whole arena knew she was taking the shot. Yeah. And that, that works for you and that works against you for sure. Well, congratulations, coach. Uh, I really, really appreciate it and continued success. Great. Thank you very much. Thanks for having on. All right. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you. This segment's all about women coaching the men's game, which, as you heard in this interview, Coach Vanderveer would say that the implicit element of this is that coaching men's basketball is better than coaching women's. It's certainly higher paid, but is it better? Is it harder? She would say no, but certainly it's more highly coveted. Certainly. I mean, more lucrative. Much more lucrative, much more respected by society, I would say. Sure. I mean, that's why Derek Fisher is like, we don't have to go too deep into that, but Derek <laughs> Fisher is not highly regarded for his time with the Sparks. Right. <laughs> but she talked about in that interview that the NBA is much more progressive than and the NCAA in terms of getting a woman to coach the men's game, which is fucking crazy mm-hmm. that the NBA would be further along since it's a more elite level than the college level. And it appears that that person, that first person woman to coach the NBA will be Becky Hammond. Almost a hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's just got, it's just gotta be her. The writing's been on the wall. I mean, she's been, she's been on the staff for like seven years now, something like that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, it's her. Greg Popovich's assistant for seven years already had interviews when gigs open for head coaching spots. I think she interviewed for the Bucks. I don't know when they hired uh, Budenholzer. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. This season, Becky Hammond made history on December 30th, which didn't get a ton of fanfare. But for those who are serious hoop heads, it was definitely in the news. She became the first woman to coach in an NBA game. When Pop got his ass tossed right before halftime <laughs> for losing his goddamn mind on the ref. So a lot of people said, you know what? She could do this. That was a moment where it was like nothing, nothing changed. It's a huge deal. It's a substantial moment. And she's worked for a decade in San Antonio to get there. Mm-hmm. So and it flew under the radar, even despite Vice President Kamala Harris tweeting about it, too, <laughs> at that point. So DeMar DeRozan talked about it as well. He said Becky played the game, and she did. And she knows the history of women's basketball. She knows the sport as good as anyone. And you never think twice about it when she's coaching. She's one of us. And when she speaks, we're all ears, which is kind of what I would think a lot of casual NBA fans would not expect, is high-caliber profile players like DeMar DeRozan saying, I mean, it's just like anybody else. We listen to her just the same way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's all. I mean, it's all kind of new frontier. You know, seeing seeing a woman standing up on the sideline, you know, w- with her team. It was just a completely new thing that we've seen. So I don't know if I didn't, you know, expect to see star players or any player really speak out on it. But it was just all so new that I think really any comment was going to feel a little foreign, you know, strange. Yeah, yeah. for sure. DeJounte Murray loves Becky Hammond to death. He was glowing with praise, very long praise. Can you read what he had to say? You've got to tip your hat to her. 
I pay attention to all those little things. She's been here since I got here. I've been watching her talk to every single player, whether he was a veteran dude or a young dude, just using her voice and her knowledge of the game. We are really, really close. She texts me on holidays to ask me about my daughter, and I ask about her kids. I appreciate her. The future is bright for her. I hope she sticks to it and doesn't give up. One day it may happen or it may not happen. Who knows? But she is definitely on the right road, and I think everyone here appreciates her. She is setting setting an example for every woman out there. LeBron James also had quite the praise for her and said, I know how hard she's put in the work, and anytime you put in the work, you get rewarded with opportunities. Man, if only that were true. (laughs) (laughs) I love LeBron James, but... I mean, that's just not the case. That's just never going to be the case anytime soon. But I like where Becky Hammond is headed. And I like that this is where the discussion is going. Because if that were true, if the game rewarded you with opportunities with your success and the time that you put in, then Tara Vanderveer would already have been the coach of the L.A. Lakers. (laughs) You know, Hammond would already be running sets for the Minnesota Timberwolves right now. And not Chris Finch. And not (laughs) Frank Vogel. Because I can tell you this, I like Frank Vogel a lot, but in terms of success metrics and percentage of wins and amount of titles and amount of accolades, Tara Vanderveer wipes the fucking floor with Frank Vogel. It's not close. (laughs) Frank Vogel has done nothing without pieces in place and Tara Vanderveer has. Right? Barren Wasteland, you go there with LeBron James. I am pretty sure Tara Vanderveer could have won a, a, a title with LeBron James and Anthony Davis. I am certain of it. <laughs> certain of it. Yes. I love LeBron, but in this case, he's wrong. So you talk to David Vanderpool, other black coaches who have been putting the time and have not been rewarded. I mean, the truth is this. You put in the time and you are not rewarded. What is rewarded is relationships and nepotism and the status quo and names in the hat, the narratives, the media pushing you to the forefront, right? I mean, that's how you get Nash being the head coach of the Brooklyn Nets and because of his relationship with Sean Marks. Yeah, I knew we were going to go there. Yeah, of course we were going to go there. Yeah, yeah. Of first course. Place, first place Brooklyn Nets. First place Brooklyn Nets with three out of the top five players in the NBA. Who have all Nets. been hurt. First three three out of the top five Brooklyn Nets. I mean, with D'Antoni, who has one of the most off, uh, innovative offensive systems. Like, yeah. it's not Steve Nash. Anyone could coach that team. Anyone. I mean, that's facts. That's how you get relationships superseding time in the work. Because what we do know is Steve Nash has not put in the time. We know that. And he has not put in the work for coaching. We know that. That's true. That's facts. Right now, there are six female assistant coaches in the NBA. Six out of 185 positions. I actually didn't realize there were that many. Yeah, I mean, and yeah. that's it sounds like a lot, even though it is like minuscule. Yeah, no, I mean, it doesn't sound like a lot, but I, I still was surprised to hear that. Yeah. I mean, this is how I get mad. Like these things, these facts, these numbers are why I get furious when I see Gerson Rosas choose Coach Finch over someone like David Vanderpool. I mean, I love Chris Finch and I've I've spent a lot of time reading about his relationship with Nick Nurse and also as you know I'm a huge Phil Handy fan and so all three of those guys are very intimately connected and I also have a relationship with Gerson Rosas and so I know that relationships make the world go round but I still get furious because relationships don't change if the status quo doesn't change. Unless the women are there then the relationships will not be built. So 
that is how you get people saying, is Becky Hammond really qualified? I don't really know whether she's that good. Like, I'm not really sure if she can lead a team. People say that because she's been on the sidelines with Pop. Somehow they think she's just like passing out Gatorade and rebounding for DeJounte Murray and like giving him nice texts to pump him up about his daughter, right? Like, no, Becky Hammond knows the game. She knows the game. And if this was Brad Hammond, no one would be asking, I wonder if Brad knows about the game. Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, (laughs) Thankfully, I mean, I know a lot of people uh, were saying things like this uh, early on in her tenure. Uh, when people kept pushing, like, oh, is she going to be the next coach? I I feel like, I mean, you definitely still see this, like, on Twitter, but I feel like on the mainstream, uh, people have started to accept the fact that she can and will be a, probably a pretty damn good coach. And yeah. that goes into really where this whole segment is going, yeah. which is that we need voices to normalize this because uh-huh. there are plenty of idiots that need to be told what to think. There's plenty of people who need to see this is normal. I mean, in the NBA, as slim as these pickings are for women assistant coaches, it is cutting fucking edge to men's Division I basketball. Do you know, Marty, how many women assistants there have been in the history of D1's men's hoops? It's got to be small since we're talking about it. Um, uh, history. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go trick question and it's zero. It's four. Four, okay. Four in history in total. There's not a, at one time. Not right now. There's not a, always. There's a lot more teams in men's D1 than the NBA, too. Yeah. Bingo. Bingo. Mathematically crazy. When Maine hired Anisha Curry in 2019, she became the first female assistant since 2002. That is 17 years of none. Zero. Zilch. Keep in mind, nearly 40% of women's D1 head coaching positions are men. And that is actually really good because a few years ago it was like 80%. Outrageous. I mean, to me, when you read something like Tara Vanderveer only hires women for her staff, at first you're like, gasp. But it's like, that's the only place they can go. That's the only safe haven that they have. No wonder coaches like Muffet McGraw at Notre Dame has announced that she's only hiring females. Sorry. You guys have plenty of opportunities. It's just not going to be on my team. You just find some other, some, some other place to work. I mean, I just get furious even thinking about these numbers. How does this even fucking happen? How does the NCAA not say, what the fuck is going on here? This is outrageous. They're like, yeah, that's cool. That's cool with us. And more importantly, How do we fix this? How do we get more women in the pipeline to make this normal, to make this more at least somewhat close to half? To me, it's not coaching. It's it's all aspects of the game, right? It's media as well. You need a diversity. To me, the, the problem and to a degree, the solution that you talked about, Marty, was diversify the voices that that talk about the game. And make sure that those voices hammer that point home. Like many people said, Becky Hammond, can she coach? And everyone was like, shut the fuck up. Yes. Yes, she can. Quick case closed. And they just kept closing the book on it and closing the book on it until people were like, okay, yes, she can. The more people of color and the more women that talk about the sport that's traditionally covered by older white men, the better, in my opinion. Because without that, 
these older white men covering the game, coached by older white men, they see that and it doesn't it doesn't register for them. That seems normal to them. It looks like them. It's not even thought about. It's just not even a second thought given. Not talked about, continues to be accepted, persists, even though, folks, I know that it's annoying. I know that when people bring up lack of inclusion, it's like, ah, why can't, why is everything about lack of inclusion? It's like, because there's not enough inclusion. (laughs) (laughs) That's why. It's because it continues to persist. That's why we keep talking about it. So the only way that change happens is that you demand it to happen, that you aggressively and forcefully push for it to happen. Do you think that the NCAA is going to do what they did again and put non-food into the food boxes and a couple of free weights and be like, yo, take this. (laughs) No, no. And the reason why is because there was a lot of very loud, very annoying voices being like, this is fucking unacceptable and needs to change yesterday. And not only, and then you know what ends up happening? While we're at it, while we're talking about these dumbbells, let's bring the whole kitchen sink in, too. And then Mark Emmert's like, fuck, it was about the dumbbells at first. And now she's now Tara's talking about the whole system. So, yeah, I don't think Mark Emmert's going to do that again. I think the whole world and the crowd will be waiting to pounce if he fucks up again. So. Not to bring it back, because I don't love to talk about this. It makes me very uncomfortable. But since I am the only solo host of an NBA podcast that's a woman with a platform, which is rare, Barstool allows me to say whatever I want to say. I am going to continue to say it every time I see it. Stick, stick, stick. That's me. This league. I thought DeMarcus Cousins was washed, Marty. (laughs) That's what people on the internet told me. The NBA said they thought that too. Nobody picked him up as soon as he got cut by Houston. Yep. What the fuck? So DeMarcus Cousins, who, by the way, does not like to be called Boogie. So if I ever see him in person, I never call him Boogie. I always call him Cuz. So Cuz landed in L.A. Weeks of speculation was flying around. Where would he go? Is he going to go to Miami? Is he going to go to Brooklyn? Is he going to go to the Lakers? Lakers, as I said, would not pick him back up. Warriors, not going to pick him back up. Once you've had him once and you don't pick him up again, I don't think, I think it's like a bad breakup or a breakup in general. You just don't go backwards there. So... He signed a 10-day contract for $175,000 with the Clippers, made his debut on Tuesday night, and in seven minutes had seven points, four rebounds, two assists. In a blowout of my favorite team, the Portland Trailblazers at Staples Center. Yep. I'd say that's a pretty decent debut, wouldn't you? Yeah, I mean, that's uh, those are efficient numbers to put up in just seven minutes of play, for sure. (laughs) Yeah. Definitely. I mean... There are guys that go 10, 14 minutes not doing a goddamn thing. So Also, has he played for all the California teams now? I think he has. He has. Yeah, four. Sacramento, L.A., Golden, L.A., Golden, Golden State. State. Yeah. Yep. Mr. Cali. Yeah, he loves it out there. So this is interesting. After not playing a minute of basketball since February 17th, he says, 
I have put in an incredible amount of work to get to this place. I feel great. My body feels great. I think I'm in the best shape I've been in in my entire career. Excuse me? (laughs) Excuse me? (laughs) You waited till you were discarded and left for dead to then decide I'm going to get in shape? What? That's crazy to me. That's insane. Yeah, uh, they were. I, I was watching the uh, Pelicans broadcast on Isaiah Thomas's first game back, and they were saying so like, "Oh, he's like he's not even just back; he's like better than he ever was." And it's like, okay, yeah, he's a on a ten day on a team that has five players out. Also, like, I think that's just a media thing to say. It's like just tell them that you're oh, in the totally, best shape. It, it totally is. It's just still funny whenever you hear it. It is. Like, yeah. Cousins at this point though, say he is in the best shape he's ever been. He's made almost a hundred million dollars in his career to date. $100 million. And only now, just now, at 30, is he like, I need to get serious about diet and exercise. DeMarcus Cousins is all of us. Fuck, my metabolism's slowing down. I can't process this shit. Every time I eat a burger, I feel like <laughs> ass the next day. He's on his fifth team in five years and has a well-documented history of weight problems. One point, clocking in at a whopping 308 pounds, which is just <laughs> insane. That is big. That is Shaq big. Yeah. I think Shaq played at 315. Yep. Yeah. And Shaq was, uh, I mean, yeah. not <laughs> a stretch five no. like DeMarcus Cousins that needs to be out on the perimeter like Cousins does. Yeah. So if that four-year $66 million extension that he signed with the Kings in two, 2014 is not going to get him to hire a personal chef and trainer, God damn it, what is why? <laughs> Why not? Like you have the money and then you've any extra weight that you carry is just going to make it easier for you to have another soft tissue injury. He has had an Achilles and then all of a sudden, oh my God, he has an ACL working up the leg. Then he has a quad tear. Then he tears the one on the other side. It's like not a shocker, bro. You are not eating well. You are not exercising well and you are heavier than you should be. So that's crazy. Maybe being almost out of the league at 30 is the reason and the wake-up call that he needed. He does look a little slimmer, don't you think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I saw him out there. Yeah, I'm excited to see him play tonight, actually. Me too. That's, I think, kind of the same thing with uh, Carmelo Anthony. Carmelo Anthony was chunky-lunky in Denver. Yeah, he got lean. Yeah. Chunky-lunky in New York. Comes back. He's at the Chris Brickley, you know, Lifetime Fitness Runs (laughs) and Hoodie Mellow. I think he was just, like, wearing a wrestling space suit and just cutting weight every time he was doing Hoodie Mellow things. And now he's, like, Slim Mellow in Portland. Sometimes the game being taken away from you makes you do things you should have done to begin with. So, good for Cousins. Clippers will likely sign him for the rest of the season, and then he's going to have probably, like, one of those games that he had for the Warriors where everybody's like, he's back! What can he be? Why did these other teams take him? Coming up on SportsCenter at 10, SVP interviews DeMarcus Cousins. (laughs) All right, next. And then then it'll get a DNP the next And then, yeah, yeah, then it'll, like, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Let's get into Tsunami Poppy, Marty. Okay. Tsunami Poppy, what a crazy name. I love it. You know, it started as Wave Poppy. Yes. Yeah. He said the next um, step, a.k.a. Kelly Oubre for casual fans, that his next step is Monsoon Poppy. Doesn't have the same ring. No, tsunami's better. Also, aren't those the same thing? I don't know. No? No? I don't know. I don't really know. Maybe? (laughs) Anyway, I think tsunami is a bigger wave than a monsoon. Yeah, it sounds sounds like it. So we have a good old case of who said, he said, she said, what's going on in Golden State. And of course, it deals with tsunami poppy Kelly Oubre. 
It's been a wild season with Kelly Oubre. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. did they want him? Does he, is he going to get traded? What's happening? Why did they pick him up in the first place? He caught fire. He's gone cold. He's caught fire again. He's gone cold again. No one really knows what they have in him. Like you said, he's been six different players yeah. on six <laughs> different teams and surrounded by trade rumors and speculation of where he might end up next year. So the latest plot twist is crazy. Former Warriors big man Andrew Bogut claimed that uh, the Pelicans offered Lonzo Ball and a pick for Ubre, which if the Warriors would have turned that down, would have been very, very dumb. But the Warriors, the reaction from Anthony Slater said, no, that's just not even close to true. So Slater said that there was some Ubre for Lonzo talk very, very early on in the season, but the Pelicans never came back to the table to discuss. Hmm. I don't know what that means. I'm not sure what that never coming back to the table. Were you at the table? Yeah, I don't know. Not sure. So apparently it was either small assets or salary dump possibilities to get Ubre off their books, which obviously does not make the Warriors better. And when you're trying to appease Steph Curry and make it appear like you're going to playoff push for a playoff spot, trading Kelly Ubre at the deadline probably not a super smart decision, I would imagine. Like not one to keep Steph happy. Yeah, no, no. It's like you and Andrew Wiggins just go out there and ball. <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, what? Uh, yeah, uh, we're going to run the point through Draymond. So Golden State says that they want Kelly Oubre moving forward. My thoughts are that they do not. Your thoughts? Uh, I don't know. I mean, th- th- there seems to be a lot of infighting over him. Like there was a quote from an anonymous player that was like, Andre Godala came off the bench and he was a finals MVP and now Kelly fucking Oubre won't do it. I mean, it was an anonymous. So Draymond. Draymond Green. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. I, and, uh, their, uh, uh, their president just resigned, I think. So I don't really know. Um, what's going on? Yeah. I don't know what that organization is thinking regarding him and it definitely is something they need to make up their minds on for sure let me say this the president resigning makes perfect sense because of the move to get kelly Oubre. when you peel back the onion it gets worse and worse and worse yeah let me confirm that before it gets yeah (laughs) Yeah. if that's the case so the warriors when they traded for him made the most disastrously expensive decision for him because ESPN's Bobby Marks notes that even though Kelly Oubre only makes $14.5 million in salary, that salary puts Golden State so deep into the luxury tax that the way that the system works obviously is very complex and it's progressive in terms of how far up the luxury tax you go. Mm-hmm. But Oubre's contract brings their tax bill from $68 million in total to $134 million, which means if you're not a mathematician, that Kelly Oubre is currently costing the Warriors $82.4 million this year. Damn. Damn. Did you know that? No, 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 no. I didn't know that quite that much. I like keeping up with the cap, but not like the super closely like that. That is obscene. That is a fireable offense. <laughs> that is, I don't think any player on earth besides LeBron James or Kevin Durant, is worth $82 million to your cap. But certainly, Tsunami Poppy is not worth $82 million to your cap. (laughs) No fucking way. Especially for a team that's going nowhere. The Warriors are probably like a 10 or 11 seed. And man, are they spending a lot of money to be a 10 seed. Worst case scenario? They spent $82 million 
making Kelly Oubre the most expensive mistake in Golden State history. <laughs> Yikes. Uh, moving on. KD made his way back to Barclays. You were there in attendance. I was. Yeah. He Apparently he was brought back out to sit on the bench because he had a little minor setback in the hamstring injury. He didn't come into the game until late. Yeah, he didn't start. It was weird because like we, it, it had been announced that, that he was coming back. And when they were announcing the lineup uh, and they went to Kyrie and like he wouldn't announce, it was like, okay, what's what's going on here? And then he didn't play the whole first quarter. Uh, but when he did come in, it was, a pre- it was a pretty cool moment in the fairly empty Barclays Center, but it was still cool. It was a thumping too. He had uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> New Orleans did not look good. No. He had 17, 7, and 5 in 19 minutes. Man, was that efficient. Yeah, no, he was, I mean, he had the ball in his hands every time down the floor. And, like he usually does. Yeah, like he usually does. <laughs> and he even tried to take a charge, which means to me that his body is better than my skeptical mind would say. Yeah, it's a good sign for sure. That's yeah, a great yeah, not sign. shying away from that. For exactly. Sure. Yeah. And also good news for. Idiots like Michael Rappaport because Easy Money Snipers now focused on basketball and not so much in the Twitter mentions. So that's big. Um, but I think that the thing that's interesting is that, like, you've now got Kevin Durant coming off of an injury. You've got Kyrie Irving with injury history. You have Harden now, who has He's been a currently injured. Yeah. Hard rock, durable as hell. And now he has a hamstring injury, which is not an easy thing to recover from. So. Even though the Nets went 19-4 and four while Durant was out, they still had Harden during that time. Mm-hmm. They still had some version, some variation of Kyrie Irving during that time. So I was a little bit concerned when he missed that first quarter because Harden is out, and I don't think the Nets are that good with just Kyrie Irving. No, oh, no, mm-mm. they're they're. I mean, they're a playoff team, but they're nothing. They're like special. a six seed. They're not a serious threat with just Kyrie by any stretch. No, by any stretch of the imagination. And of course, Kevin Durant looked good. I think they're going to probably baby him in in the best possible way. I don't mean that in any disrespectful way. I think no, you, they should. I mean, they should yeah. make sure that they're going to be the one or two seed. And yeah. yeah. And so, why would you really play him any more than you want? But when the Iron Man is down, rot row. <laughs> Rot row, you've got one star out. That's not that you're an elite team. Two stars out depends on if it's Kyrie. If Harden's there, I think you're all good. When you start losing Harden and KD, you've got a, a big, big time problem. So, in a lot of ways, I would say the 2020 21 NBA season hinges on a pair of hamstrings in Brooklyn. So, that's all the time that we have for the This League podcast. Please subscribe. Uh, please rate, please review on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify. Like I said, it's it always makes a huge difference for us in the algorithm if you subscribe and resubscribe. I think that the Kevin Durant, Michael Rappaport rant got us some subscribers. I got a few people being like, this is the one. Oh, sick. This is the <laughs> one that has made me decide to actually watch consistently and go on YouTube. So also, please follow us on the This League TikTok account, Trista Crick on TikTok, Trista underscore Crick on Twitter. Uh, also... YouTube and Facebook. Um, please tune in for Monday's episode with Phil Handy, and uh, we will see you then. Thanks for listening.